Our passage this morning, we're picking up at Romans chapter 9, verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if your Bible is like my Bible, but the uh, corners around Romans 8 and 9 are starting to get a little uh, curled in and frayed. We've logged a decent amount of hours together in these great chapters. I'm so thankful for you. The conversations I've heard that have spun out of Romans 9, surely not all of them have been easy, but I've been so encouraged by how you've received this word as it's the word of the Lord. Uh, Romans 9 has been good. If you've had questions, uh, you're not alone. And uh, we encourage you to uh, continue to ask those questions rightly. Uh, we encourage you to jump into a home group, but also the pastors are having uh, next week for our equip time at 930 Q&A. So you can email those in or text them in on that day, and we will try to get to as many of those as possible. And certainly we know from Romans 9, there are many that we can't answer, but we trust the Lord who speaks to us in his word. As we turn to Romans 9 again this morning and continue our journey, let's pray. Father, I do just ask as we uh, get some more time in Romans 9 that you would magnify your mercy again and that that mercy would change and shape us in beautiful ways. It's in Christ's name I pray this. Amen. There's an old proverb that says that the night is darkest just before the dawn. I don't know if that's scientifically accurate. The proverb stands either way. The, the dawn is a beautiful time of the day, in my opinion. Some people like to see dusk more than dawn, but I love to be able to see when the, the night is dark with the breaking and the glory of the breaking of the sun on the canvas of darkness. When the rays of light start to pour in and, the, and just kind of the brilliance you can get at that time of the day from the rays of the sun that you can't get during the day or at any other time. And Romans 9 is a bit like that. It is Paul pouring light onto a, a dark canvas, if you will. He, he picks up this question. Hey, they're asking, what are we to make of the Jews who are, by and large in our experience, cut off from Christ, rejecting the very gospel that you said, Paul, at the beginning, has the power of God to salvation? What are we to make of that? And what are we to make on the flip side that... that What's happening instead is that Gentiles, who are the people who hadn't received the promises, haven't received the covenant, those are the people who are pouring in to our churches. What are we to make of these things? What are we to make then of, of God's word? His word that went out to these people, these Jews, and, and made these promises to them, and yet seems like now, by and large, they're cut off. Are, are we sure that God can keep his word? Or what are we to make of God's character? If he's the God who 
He has mercy on whom he will and he hardens whom he will. What are we to make of his character? Is there injustice or unfairness on God's part? So the canvas of, of Romans 9 is a bit dark in some ways. There aren't very many Jews around, Paul. Is God fair? Is his word failed? Is there injustice? There's a million difference. Yeah, Paul, but what about this? What if this? Why this? And the book of Romans has been clear that every single one of Paul's audience, everyone that he writes to are, are people deserving of God's judgment and wrath. That there's none righteous, not even one. That's a dark canvas. That all sit under the just wrath of the Lord. But chapter 9 shows us that against that backdrop, God is exercising His rights as God to harden whom He will and to have mercy on whom He will. That no one in that realm and against that backdrop as unrighteous people has a claim over God or rightly levels an accusation against Him. All are deserving of His wrath. But it's against that backdrop of wrath that's hanging over all of us that Paul pours the light on and says... God will have mercy, though. A mercy that when we see rightly is a mercy that we can be thankful for and even delight in. Here, I think Paul goes even further to establish that God's word has not failed. Rather, God has been very effective with his mercy in calling the Gentiles and been effective with his mercy in the Jews as well. So he picks up. He's been answering this question of verse 6. I'll state it as a question he says, it's not as if though God's word has failed. That's the verse. He says, the question could be, has God's word failed when we're looking at the current spiritual state of the Jews? And he goes way back to support the idea, the fact, the reality that his word hasn't failed. In fact, he goes back to the eternal purposes of God and he quotes all these Old Testament texts telling us, putting before us with solid evidence that God's word stands. And in doing this, Paul argued that God exercises his freedom as God to harden whom he will and to show mercy to whom he will. And then Paul is going to bring the answer flowing from the verses we just read, verse 22 and 23 last week, to the present. He kind of made a past foundational argument for God doing what he does as God. And then he kind of brings it to the present. Now let's look around at the current state. And let's remember... That when God is this one who, verse 22 and 23, has prepared vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, that he has, as we look around, vessels of mercy. Verse 24, Paul says, speaking of these vessels of mercy from verse 23 that he's prepared for glory, that even us whom he's called, these are the vessels of glory. Now, Paul wants readers to recognize as they look around thinking of this even us, that God has displayed the riches of His glory, the greatness of His name in showing mercy. He's done that, Paul says, to even us. I love those words, even us. It, it kind of reminds me of the, the, the great hymn, And Can It Be? You just sense the, the wonder and astonishment. Can it be that I, I could gain? That I could gain? Paul's even us, even us, prepared for glory. The even us here are the even us, Paul knows, him and, and his audience that, that were those who were under the wrath of God. But what happened in that place where they were under God's wrath and judgment? They were called. God magnified his mercy by his calling, a calling that 
like verse 23, is still a calling that's against the backdrop of their own wrath and judgment that they deserve in their lives. And against that backdrop, God called. Called. After chapters 8 and 9, surely we can't look at the word called the same ever again. This is no flimsy word. This is a sturdy word. It's according to God's eternal purpose. It's that kind of word. It's a free, sovereign, God-calling word. It's an effective word that when he goes after it, it gets done. That's the kind of call that Paul speaks of here. He doesn't want them to miss that God has vessels of mercy. It includes this even us, even against a backdrop of wrath. And missing that backdrop of the wrath and judgment of God that we deserve leads to a missing of the mercy of God's calling. The the Gentiles, if you're reading chapter 9 and you're looking at verses 22 and 23, these tough verses of what God is doing here, preparing vessels of wrath for destruction, preparing vessels of mercy for glory. When you look at that, if the Jews were looking at it, they're going to say, this is no question that the Gentiles are the ones who have been considered, verse 22, those are the vessels of wrath. They are the ones destined for destruction. They were those who would have first come to the minds of many when Paul says that, hey, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which he says in verse 18. They would have come to mind. And here's what Paul says here, though, in verse 24. They were called. And you miss the wonder and the mercy of that calling if the backdrop of that wrath and what they're saved from is not quite as dark. Is a little bit neutral. Miss some of the wonder and the mercy of God's calling if you miss what they're saved from. Christian, it is important for us to know what we're saved for. It's also important to know what we're saved from. That we have been saved, we trust in Christ, from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. And when we know what we're saved from, what it leads to is a magnification of the mercy of God. It leads to this disposition before God that wouldn't have claims over God, but would delight in Him for exercising His freedom as God. Christians are those who know that they were, at least in some sense, headed for destruction, but that in that place, on their hell-bound race, God showed mercy. God called them and rescued them from that destruction that they deserved. And so now they can be people who, when they look at God as being God, and sense and know some of His mercy, they can delight in it. And the scope of that mercy... And the scope of that calling is seen in that little word, us, here. Even us. This us, Paul speaks of, is an us that includes both Jews and Gentiles. It's a broad scope that this mercy hits. He says in verse 24, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only. That would have been expected, but he says, but also from, and here's the emphasis, the Gentiles. The the Jews' rejection of the gospel, by and large, is a major question. Their inclusion in the gospel isn't. Verse 4 and 5, it says of them, they were the ones who received the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race comes the Christ. But the Gentiles included on any sort of covenant with God would have been a hard question too. They were far off. And Paul wants to make sure that they know again that they're being brought near. 
Those Gentiles are called, even us. Paul accounts for the Gentile inclusion here by stating that that inclusion wasn't something that just kind of happened. It was part of God's purpose. It was part of God's intention. And he goes back and he says, let's look at the prophets to show us this. And he goes to Hosea. Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Here Paul references and kind of quotes Hosea 2 and Hosea 1. He changes the order. So if you're looking at Hosea, he sort of changes the order of Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, that he quotes here in verse 25. I think he does that to bookend this part of him including the Gentiles. He bookends it each side with called. I think that's what the emphasis is here. To highlight that calling and that that calling is for those Gentiles. That's what he's getting at here. It's interesting that he quotes Hosea. Hosea is this prophet who marries an unfaithful woman, Gomer. Great name throughout the scripture, right? Like Gomer. We haven't uh, done any uh, parent commissionings with Gomer as the child. Consider it. It's a biblical name. Hosea marries an unfaithful (laughs) Gomer and Gomer is unfaithful to him. She has children outside of the marriage covenant. And he says, you're going to call these children not mine. Think about that as a name for a child. You're going to call them unloved. And so what Hosea has to do in this book is he has to actually, his wife is unfaithful, leaves him. He has to go and buy her back from slavery, take her in as his own wife. And then he has to switch the names of these kids that aren't his. Switch them from not mine to mine. From unloved to beloved. And Paul quotes that here and says, hey, Gentiles are kind of like that. But what's interesting that in Hosea's context is that that's all about Israel. That's not a prophecy that's shot at the Gentiles at all there. And here, Paul clearly has Gentiles in mind. That's clearly the emphasis. Notice verse 24 again. Also from the Gentiles, and then he goes right into it. So what's going on here? Israel was the people that was not my people who will be my people at that time. And here it's applied to the Gentiles. Perhaps there's a principle at work there. That that it's to say that God was working in a way then to say this was not my people and, and I will make them my people. And by principle, this is how God works and maybe Paul is applying it that way. Or it's possible that he's saying it's, it's a little bit parallel. That they were not my people wasn't the final word for Israel. It's going to be the same for some Gentiles. That they were not my people is not going to be the final word for them. But perhaps there's something more. And I think it's likely that Paul is using Hosea, chapters 1 and 2, to assert that the fulfillment of what Hosea was prophesying in Hosea 1 and 2 is a fulfillment that's not found in the Jews only, but in the called, both Jews and Gentiles. That he's saying, this people who I'm going to bring back as my own people is not going to be fulfilled in the Jews alone, but in Jews and Gentiles together. That they're both included on this. Paul looks at the even us that includes himself and the saints at Rome, and this is a mixed group of Jew and Gentile, and with that, he says, see, God's word hasn't failed. He has been calling, and he has called even us, me and some Gentiles that I'm writing to, both Jew and Gentile, and that's exactly what Hosea said. Now it's being fulfilled in our midst. That the church at Rome, 
those who are justified by their faith in Jesus, are the people that were not God's people who are now God's people. They were the ones who were far off from God, who God brings near and calls beloved. They are now the called, the sons of God. I think that this is fulfilled in both Jews and Gentiles. It's supported by verse 26. He says that in every place where it said to them, you're not my people, they will be called sons of God. Sons of God. We've, we've heard that before in Romans, haven't we? In chapter 8, who are the sons of God? 8.14, they're the ones who have the Spirit of God. They're led by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God works in them to cry out, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit of adoption that they've received. In verse 23, this is the, the sons that they cry out. They, they want their adoption. They're longing and groaning for their adoption fully as sons. And in chapter 8, what is so clear is that that adoption, that sonship, is not a Jewish thing. That's a life in the Spirit thing. That's an in Christ thing. That's an in Christ reality that now is at work in the saints who are at Rome that are both Jew and Gentile. So those who have faith in Jesus, whether they are Jewish or whether they are Gentile, are called sons of the living God. And Paul says, that's what Hosea said was going to happen. The fulfillment of God restoring Israel as my people includes Gentiles as part of that people. Seems then that the true Israel that God intended to call sons and my people includes Gentiles as part of that people. How does that happen? Hosea's backdrop and background matters. He had to seek after his wife. He had to buy her back. He had to change some names. And that's the picture of the Gentiles' inclusion, isn't it? They were separated from the promises of God. They were outside of the covenant. They didn't receive the law. They were doing what Gomer was doing. They were prostituting themselves with other gods. They weren't serving the Creator. They were serving created. They weren't giving thanks to the Creator. They were worshiping idols. That's who they were. They were outside of the promises of God. And their trajectory as a people was toward judgment and wrath. So how can they be called my own people by a holy God? How can they be called beloved? Well, the sovereign freedom of God as God showed mercy. And he shows mercy to whom he'll show mercy. That's how they can be called my people. Romans 9 has been a, a chapter that certainly challenges us with the realities of the sovereign freedom of God. But it's at this precise point that we need to see that those sovereign freedoms of God as God are beautiful. Beautiful enough to show mercy. Not my people become people to God. Because he does it. Those who are far off, he calls beloved. It's his work. He does it. And there's no other way that it happens. He loves because he loves he has mercy on whom he will, but he has mercy. God calls the Gentiles, Gentiles. Those who are serving creative things, worshiping idols. He calls some of them his own. And Paul says this wasn't some sort of error along the way. This was part of the purpose and intention of God. And it was an effective call because he says, even us, and he speaks of these who know the greatness and the glory of the gospel that Paul speaks of. They're in Christ. 
So it's God's intention to show mercy to those who are far off, to those who are not his, and to make them his own, to love the undeserving. And it's effective because he has Gentile vessels of mercy assembled in Rome that Paul can write to that display the riches of the glory of God and proclaim his name all over again. God makes himself known as one who takes those who aren't his and makes them his. This is what the waters are going to show us today. Here are people coming saying, I wasn't his, and now I'm his. How did that happen? He did it. He calls them his sons. Those who are unloved, he calls beloved. One author says this, that says God, all that you know by me is that I will save poor sinners, that I delight in mercy. I care not who knows this. Saying, get it out there. And that's what God is doing. He's using vessels of mercy to display the greatness of his glory. He wants to be known as one who delights in showing mercy. And apart from God's intervening mercy, the people who are not my people would continue to not be his people. Those who are unlovely would continue to be unlovely. That's true for all Christians. But this is what God does for us. He sets his love on us. He seeks us. He pursues us. He seeks us while we're in our sin. He buys us back, redeems us, makes us his, that we might be a display of his mercy, that we deserved his wrath. If you're not a Christian, here's what this mercy is meant to do. It's meant to show you the character and nature of this God. It's meant to show you your need for him and for his mercy so that you might call out to him for mercy. And he is a God who wants to be known as a God who will have mercy. But if you're a Christian and you're hearing this, we get to breathe deep this morning in the mercy of God. Delight in it. Thank God for it. Praise God for it. You belong now. Undeserved mercy has been handed to you And now you no longer have anything to prove. You're beloved of the Father. Sons of the one true living God. If Romans 9 has been a little bit weighty, I'm guessing it has, right? Heavy stuff. You can know that if you trust in Jesus, that God has had mercy on you. It's been effective. And through that, your trust in Jesus, you can know God calls me his own. And as those who are, I'm not of Jewish descent, I don't know if anybody here is of Jewish descent, as those who are Gentiles, we need to know that that's actually part of the intention of God, that it didn't just skip off the Jews and accidentally ricochet onto us, that God intended this, that it was purposeful, that he might display his mercy in those who were non-Jews. We're part of the fulfillment of what God has been doing for a long time. And so Paul looks around and he says, there are Gentile vessels of mercy. That was intended It's effective, this call that he sends out. It's part of God's purpose of election that his word might be shown to not have failed. But verse 6 is question with the Gentiles pouring into the church, but the Jews not so much, is what are we to make of this? As a Roman church that has both Jew and Gentile, what are we to make of this, Paul? Okay, now we get the understanding of the inclusion of the Gentiles, but then he switches to the inclusion of the Jews, and he has to give an account for that. Why so few? And he goes in verse 27 and 28 to address that. And he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Again, way more direct here. Talking about the inclusion of the Jews. 
Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. He is moving from Gentiles to thinking about the inclusion of whatever is included from the Jews. And He's grounding that inclusion in saying that those Jews that have come in, that was part of the intention and purpose of God too, but the inclusion is but a remnant. So He's... Again, set about answering verse 6. Like, has God's word failed? He made all these promises. His word went out to some Jews and has it failed? He says, no, no, it hasn't failed from the beginning. Not all Israel was true Israel. That's verses 6 through 13. He illustrates this brilliantly by saying, like, hey, do you remember that by physical descent didn't make you part of true Israel, the people of God, those who are called the true sons of God? Do you remember Ishmael? He was physically descended from Abraham, but wasn't part of the promise. Or if we'll go even further in, we'll go to Jacob and Esau. They were both descended from the same parents, so we have even less wiggle room. Remember that that only one of them was true Israel out of two that were in the same womb. And, And he's saying this affirms that God's purpose of election of Israel was never that it would be all of Israel without exception, but that it was for some within Israel. It was part of a remnant that he was working from the beginning of that. There are vessels of mercy among the Jews, a remnant, God says, that shows that, that God's word hasn't failed. They could look around them as the church and say, hey, look, we, we, know, we know God's word hasn't failed. We see that there's a remnant of Jews around us. Paul is a testimony to this very thing, that God's word and his calling has been effective in the Jews as well. Paul stands there as evidence. He says that, that that's happening is a remnant. And remnant is an important term, concept, word. It's a word of judgment. It's a word of hope. Think about this remnant. Though they're as many as the sand, they're numerous. But that's not the experience of those who are receiving the gospel. They're not as numerous. So there's judgment spoken there, right? There is the sand and only a remnant. But that remnant there... That's a word of hope. There's a remnant presence, and this is the way it has been. Think about the book of Exodus. They go out, they see the magnificence of the name of God displayed in these wonderful signs, and God sustains them and keeps them through the Red Sea, and they go to the wilderness. But how many make it to the promised land? Not many. Many came out of Egypt. Many saw the the mercy of God. Not many were changed by it. Few made it to the promised land. Not long after that, we go to the time of the judges when it says everyone's kind of doing what's right in their own eyes. There's many. They're not following the Lord. Only a few are faithful. Elijah, he has this great moment on Mount Carmel where he goes toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal and he defeats them. And right after that, he's just so dejected. You'd think you're riding high on the victory and he's like, there's no one, God. I'm the only one. And God's like, you're not the only one. But the number he gives him is pretty small. This is you and a few others. There's sand out there of the Israelites and just a few. Or you think of Ezra and Nehemiah. After they've gone into exile, how many are there remaining? How many are wanting to come back to the promised land? It's not many. But it is some. And, and Paul looks back and he says, that's as Isaiah said. Isaiah said that. 
So this remnant is a word that says, though Israel has been unfaithful to God over and over again, that they've broken the covenant that they've made with God over and over again, they've walked in rebellion and disobedience over and over again, that God is still faithful to her. Again, it's against the backdrop of judgment and wrath. In Isaiah, if you look at the context of Isaiah that he quotes here, it's a a context of total destruction. That's what he pronounces over them. And in that context, God's mercy still shines that he will have a remnant. Paul's emphasis here in this passage is in the backdrop of, of judgment is that there is salvation for some. And that makes that salvation shine all the brighter, doesn't it? It's that... God promises to carry out salvation for remnant. The the remnant, Paul says, are are the remnant that explains Israel's present spiritual state. That there's only a few, but that's how it's been, and God has always kept a remnant. But God's word has not failed. He's kept them. And that this remnant are saved by the mercy of God, and that this remnant is a magnification of the mercy of God, is so evident in what he says in verse 29. That this remnant is not a remnant because they are a remnant of physical descent. He makes that plain by verse 29. Isaiah also predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Was there more, a more infamous place in Jewish thought than Sodom and Gomorrah? Maybe even today, like... It's still used today. Like, could there be a more infamous place than these two places? These cities that were so set against the the greatness and glory of God, so rebellious to God and His ways and His design, that God was going to overthrow the city, pour down fire and sulfur on the city, totally destroy them because of their wickedness. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah is known for. And you get Abraham, this faithful man who trusts in the Lord, right? And it was counted to him as righteousness, who walks with the Lord. And he tells Abraham, God tells Abraham what he's going to do. And you know what Abraham does? He says, God, you're God. What if there's 10 left in the city? He gets it all the way down to 10. Will you overthrow it? Not for 10. We go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's not even 10. Not even 10. God does go in to the city. He sends his angels to get Lot and his family. This would be the very offspring, a kinsman, related to Abraham. And even there, they were pretty mixed bag. Look at Deuteronomy, sorry, not Deuteronomy, Genesis chapter 19. This is Lot's family to Abraham. And the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place. doesn't even have ten. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot, he went out. And he said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to them, this is just a taste of the wickedness of this place. He seems to them, to his sons-in-law, to be jesting. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Right? Again, they're warning, judgment is coming. Get out of here. And what does Lot do? Verse 16, he lingers. 
This is how wicked this place is. And so they have to seize him and pull him out of the city. And what happens when they pull he and his wife and his daughters out of the city? Like you say, don't turn around. His wife turns around. And even from there, we have Lot and his daughters, and I won't go into that now, but the story is still pretty rocky from that point on. Like, there's all kinds of wickedness. There's maybe not a more infamous place on planet Earth than Sodom and Gomorrah. And Isaiah says that Israel would be like that if not for what? If not for the Lord. If the Lord had not left us offspring. What Israel deserved, what the people who had received the promises, the covenant, what they deserved, what was their trajectory was the wrath and judgment of God. They deserved what Sodom and Gomorrah received. That was not only what they deserved, that was where they were headed. So there, as they're looking around and thinking, hey, is God fair? We were the recipients of the covenants. They have no complaint that they can make against God. Because the only reason that God would preserve any from Israel and keep them back from judgment was because He is merciful. Amen. But the Lord intervened with His mercy, didn't He? And He left offspring, didn't He? And the story of the Jews shows over and over and over again that though, by and large, they are rebellious people against the Lord that God has kept and sustained a few that are His. Over and over and over again, this people proved unfaithful, as unfaithful as Gomer was to Hosea, but over and over and over again, God kept a remnant. So the questions that fly in chapter 9 are, has God's word failed? Or, or if we know that God is exercising his righteous God, then, then is there injustice on God's part? Or verse 19, why does he still find fault? They can fly at God because he's a sovereign and free God. But Romans 9 keeps showing us over and over again, if God is not sovereignly, freely handing out mercy to whom he will, then it would be wrath for everyone. And against that backdrop, the mercy of God shines brightly through a remnant. The backdrop of wrath, the trajectory of a rebellious people, highlight the mercy of God. That these people didn't come, become like Sodom and Gomorrah, highlights the mercy and patience of God. But it also shows that God is so effective in his calling. Effective that in the midst of that wickedness, God kept some. He has a remnant. His word hasn't failed. It went out and it didn't return void. It kept some people. He showed mercy to whom he will and he kept them. Quite the opposite of this charge that his word has failed. Paul looks back at Isaiah and he says, this is what could have happened, but it didn't because God did keep his word. It's a steady, sturdy word that you can build your life on. That there's a remnant is a testament to the faithfulness and the mercy of God. And church, the, the backdrop of wrath that's woven through Romans chapter 9, the trajectory of judgment that you can see is the backdrop and trajectory of every single one of us. But friends, here we are by the mercy of God. Breathing by the mercy of God. Sure, as we've gone through Romans 9, the questions are there. But let's make sure not to miss the mercy that's so evident as well. It's interesting that Paul 
goes to Isaiah's text here that speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did you pick that text that would reference them? I think that Paul picks it because of this word that is used, offspring. That same word is used several times in the book of Romans so far. You see it a lot in Romans chapter 4, where the offspring of Abraham are, are what? Those who have faith like their father Abraham had. They are those who have faith in this God, and God counts their faith to them as righteousness. It seems as if maybe even in that, he's signaling what we need to do with this. Like, here's what you do with the mercy of God, is you receive it by trusting that God is the one that you can put all of your life on, and he is the one who can sustain you and keep you. Against the backdrop of wrath, this is what we need. The same root of this word offspring is used in chapter 1, verse 3, to speak of not just sons of God, but the son. Descended from David, Jesus Christ, descended, same root. And against the backdrop of wrath and rejection and rebellion, this son came. Mercy took on flesh, dwelt among us. We go through Romans 9. It is so important to see mercy rightly. Mercy is the non-justice of God. We need to have that rightly as a concept in our mind that God owes this to no one. He owes justice. He knows how to show non-justice because He's God. But we don't just need to know it as non-justice. We need to know mercy as a mercy that will move one from being not my people to one who's my people. Mercy that knows of, of what he does when he takes those who feel unloved by God, where God draws them near and says, you're beloved. Church, the backdrop of wrath, the trajectory of judgment is truly a terrible backdrop. It's really dark, and it's what we deserve. But it's against that backdrop and against that trajectory that God's mercy is shining in and through us who trust in Jesus. And that this mercy is there shows something that is more beautiful than we know. Mercy that we need to not only receive rightly, cling onto, but mercy that leads us to thank God and delight that He is a God who shows mercy to whom He will. Let's delight as a church in the mercy of God. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we know the backdrop is dark. Your word tells us that all of us like sheep have gone astray, that we've all turned to our own way, Lord, that you would be pleased to have mercy on any of us is really beyond us, Lord when we consider your righteousness and your holiness and your desire for justice. Father, we're grateful that you have called us out of that darkness, God, that you have shown us your mercy. We're grateful that you've not just saved us and, and called us out of that, Lord, but you've chosen in your sovereignty to use us as vessels to declare truth and to, and to preach the gospel to those who are yet to be called. And we're going to hear more about that, Lord, but we, we pray that the overwhelming sense of gratitude that we 
we must feel in view of this truth, God. We pray that that would move us to share with those who don't know you, Father, the, the truth of salvation found in Christ. We're grateful that we get to see that represented this morning in, in the baptisms that are about to happen, Father. It, such a clear picture of, of what you've done and that you've called a people to yourself out of death, that you've rescued them from the grave and that you've raised them up, Father, to live a life that glorifies you. And Lord, it would be a mistake to forget our mothers here today. Lord, we know that this day has been set aside to celebrate them, Lord. And where would we be without godly mothers, without women who have been faithful to raise their kids in the fear of you as channels and conduits of grace and mercy that you've shown them? Lord, we pray that you continue to bless their lives as they have such a challenge in today's culture, especially with all the obstacles, Lord, that they face. We pray your blessing over the moms here today, that, Father, your spirit would just continue to work in and through them, Lord, to, to show their kids a godly life and to lead them um, in a way that pleases you. We're grateful again, Father, that you are merciful. We're grateful that, Father, you were pleased to call us your own, to make us a part of that remnant. And we know it only happened through Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.